Amen. Good worship. Luke 18 tonight as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. While we're on worship, one thing we as Christians need to remember. When the glory goes up, the Bible says, the glory comes down. And if we want to experience the glory of God in the church, the glory has to rise up from God's people to God. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead. As you can tell, I'm just a little excited about that one. All right, if you have an outline of Luke 18, that's great. If not, that's okay too. If you want an outline, I'm sure there's extra copies on each of the tables. In this passage of Scripture, it's really about centering our lives around Jesus. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to die on the cross. He's sharing with his followers those last important principles. And really in this passage, you could even boil it down to this. Jesus wants us to talk, uh, wants us to talk to him. He wants us to be aware of him. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to trust him. And so in this passage this, this evening, notice first of all this great story that Jesus gives to illustrate a point about encouraging us to pray. And when Jesus gives a story, he, he shares with us some interesting characters. And this unjust judge in these first eight verses of Luke chapter 18 reminds me of an old cartoon character named Snidely Whiplash. That's who this guy reminds me of. Notice it said, Jesus told them a parable to show them they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. There was also a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but later on he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor have regard for people, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice or in the end, she will wear me out by her unending pleas. And the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a very sobering, solemn question Jesus asks at the end of verse 8, one that we should keep in mind throughout our Christian life for this reason. Jesus here in these eight verses is encouraging us to pray. But notice, first of all, that the parable provides a contrast. He certainly isn't telling us that God is like the unrighteous judge. And yet many times, that, that's what Christians think when they think about prayer and praying to God. They almost get the mentality that God is up there and He doesn't really want to bless me. He doesn't want to really give me what I need. Therefore, I've sort of got to nag. i got to wear him out. i, I got to go and just keep talking to him until finally he goes, I'm tired of you coming. Now I'm going to give you, you know, what you want to do. I just don't want to deal with you anymore. And what Jesus here is teaching is, that's just the opposite of the way God is. God wants to bless his people. He wants to give good things to his children. So he's very much the opposite of the unjust judge. Also, in contrast to this widow, who would have represented, especially in Jesus' day, that person that is most helpless and had no one to turn to, in, in, in our lives, we have the Lord God Almighty to turn to. 
And that's why Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? We never have to feel like that widow that I've got nobody to turn to. And the only person I know to turn to is this unjust judge that doesn't really respect me, doesn't love me, doesn't care about me. We never have that. We always have God looking out for us, loving us, and caring for us. So the parable provides a contrast. Don't look at the way Jesus portrays the widow and the unjust judge as like the widow is like us and the unjust judge is like God. It's just the opposite. Second, prayer reaffirms who God is. We could talk about prayer a lot, but the thing I think many of us, we miss sometimes in prayer is we think that in talking to God, it's primarily to get God to change things. And I'm not saying that things don't change when we pray. But primarily what needs to stay constant in our prayer life is our concept, our view of God. That if we don't stay connected to God and keep talking to Him through the circumstances of life, through things that happen to us, we can begin to get erroneous views of who God is. And that's why Jesus says... I'm giving you this parable to show you that you should always pray and not lose heart. Literally in the Greek language, the words lose heart mean to give in to evil. Think about that. When we think of losing heart, we think of discouragement. And not that this isn't part of it, but why do we get discouraged? Why do we lose heart? Because we give in to evil. How do we give in to evil? Because the things that we go through or that God allows us to go through in our lives, we begin to get unbiblical concepts of God. We can begin to stray in our thoughts to think God doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He won't help me. All these things. And that's how you and I can give into evil. When we stop praying, when we stop going into God's presence, when we stop talking to God, when we distance ourselves from God, especially when we're going through hard times, those bad thoughts and erroneous views of God are going to creep in and take hold in our minds. And Jesus is saying the way to stop those erroneous views, those wrong concepts of God coming in and gripping our minds is to keep talking to God. Keep communicating, keep communing, keep fellowshipping with Him. Because prayer reaffirms in our lives who God is. It's not always going to change our circumstances, but what it will do is change us. And what it will do is remind us of who God always is, always will be. That's primarily what prayer does. Notice also, Jesus talks about the fact that circumstances and timing tests our faith. That's why he says, over in verse 17, won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? Many times we think so. Many times we think God's late and in God's timing of things and in the circumstances that God allows us to go through is when our faith and our concept of God is really tested. That's why I put there prayer is an act of faith. And that's why Jesus says, when I come back, Will I find faith on the earth? Because it takes faith to pray. It takes faith, that conviction and persuasion of who God really is, to talk to Him. If I really stop believing He is who the Bible reveals Him to be, then I'll stop praying. And, and, and I won't look at prayer primarily from a biblical perspective that Prayer is primarily to reaffirm and keep centering me on who God is and changing me. 
I'll keep looking at prayer as changing circumstances. And when I go through life as a Christian doing that and my circumstances don't change, then I begin to think what? Prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. And therefore, I stop praying. And Jesus, in a sense, by asking this question at the end of verse 8, is basically saying that when I come back, I think I'm going to find a lot of prayerless Christians. I think I'm going to find a generalization here, a prayerless church. That Christians are going to stop praying because they've given in to evil. They've given in to those wrong, unbiblical, erroneous concepts of God. Jesus encourages us to pray. He encourages us to talk to Him and not lose heart. Secondly, Jesus encourages us to humility, to be aware of Him. Jesus also told this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Verse 9. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The tax collector, however, stood far off and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner that I am. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why is this passage right after the passage on prayer? Because prayer is also an act of humility. In my pride, I think I can handle things by myself, so I don't need to go to God. I don't need to depend upon God. I don't need to ask Him for anything. I can handle this on my own. When we humble ourselves before God, that's when we start praying. And the Bible says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. James chapter 5. So notice here, in this encouragement to humility, He's challenging the self-confident. He told this parable specifically in verse 9 to those who were confident, those who were persuaded to trust in themselves and that they were righteous without Him. In other words, they were self-righteous. I'm righteous enough on my own. I don't need the righteousness of God that's found in Jesus Christ. I can be good enough. I can do enough good works. And when men and women have that kind of self-confidence and that kind of pride, notice what it also produces. It produces them looking down on everyone else. The words look down here literally mean to treat people as of no account to treat what they say as of no account, to basically despise them utterly. You have people like that in your life. Hopefully we're not like that to other people. That you could share something, you could say something, and you know by that person's reaction, they could care less about your opinion. They could care less about what you say. Jesus says that's what pride will do. That's what self-confidence in our own righteousness will do. And he challenges that. He challenges that with a story of two men who are praying. And notice I put there, pride and humility really are clearly evident. They're clearly evident in the way we treat each other. 
That comes across in our relationships. And it comes across in even being aware or, in a sense, unaware of God. Notice the Pharisee when he prays. In verse 11, and not so much the posture, because it's okay to stand and pray, but it was more his heart attitude. And notice that even though he directs his prayer to God, what's his prayer all about? Himself. Notice how many times he uses the word I in his prayer. And notice that in his prayer, if you will, to God about himself, that he's comparing himself to other people. Well, God, I know I'm better than they are, so you're lucky to have me, right? (laughs) And that's what pride or a lack of humility will do. When you and I start getting lifted up in pride, one of the signs of that is we'll start comparing our Christian life to other people's. Instead of the standard being Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God's Word, we'll start comparing ourselves to others. We'll start looking down at others. We'll start despising others. And even as we pray and talk to God, it's going to be all about us. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I give a tenth of everything I get. I fast twice a week. Look how good I am, God. But notice the tax collector. The tax collector, it wasn't again so much about his posture, but about his heart. There was a reverence and a respect for God, first of all. And then there's the idea that he understands that the only reason he's able to pray at all and stand and talk to God is because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, because God has made propitiation For him who is stained with sin. That's what the word sinner there means in verse 13. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his home right with God. That's what the word justified means. Right with God. So notice, I put there in the notes, how does God deal with both? Well, he says, for everyone who exalts himself, who honors himself, who seeks to lift himself up, God's going to humble him. And as I've learned the hard way in my own Christian life, and this is what the Bible teaches as well, better to humble yourself than have God have to humble you. Because when God humbles us, here's what the word humbled means. To make low, to be brought low, to literally be reduced. See, God wants to, God wants to say, increase our lives, increase our influence, increase our ministry, increase our impact. But if in our pride we lift ourselves up, God is going to give us a smaller and smaller role within his kingdom. Because God is only going to give great responsibility and great impact to those who are willing to reduce themselves and not seek to be out in front. And exalt themselves. We just sang about exalting God. And when again, then just the opposite. When you and I are not interested in exalting ourselves and lifting ourselves up, but lifting God up, then God says, I'll lift you up. I'll put you out there in front of people. Because I know that when I elevate you, you're not going to want the attention to be on you. You're going to want to reflect it to me. So I will exalt you. That's how God deals with both. 
And then we see in this other passage the necessity of humility in entering God's kingdom. In verse 15, Now people were even bringing their babies to him for him to touch. But when the disciples saw it, they began to scold those who brought them. But Jesus called for the children, saying, Allow or let the little children come to me, and do not try to stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. By the way, this is a good time for me to stop and just say how thankful I am for our children's ministry and our children's director and all those who work with our children on Tuesday night and Sunday. Because here's the cool thing about a church like ours, and not like we're the only one, but like ours. Those children aren't just getting babysitting over there. They're not just being occupied or entertained. Those children at the very youngest ages are learning about Jesus and learning about God and learning about the Bible. And they are being given an unbelievable foundation that will help them and aid them and support them the rest of their lives. Jesus welcomes children. And we need to do as well. And in verse 17, he says, I tell you the truth, whatever or whoever, excuse me, does not receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. That's why it takes humility to enter the kingdom. Because these babies, these very young children, they were helpless. They were weak. They they couldn't bring anything. They didn't have anything at that point in their life. They came empty-handed. And Jesus says, that's the way people have to come in order to enter the kingdom of God. You can't come with your own righteousness saying, look how good I am. Now let me into your kingdom, God. No, the only way we can come, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means someone who doesn't come with anything of their own, but comes just as they are. You ever watched Billy Graham crusade? What was the song they always ended with? Just as I am without one plea. Because that's the way God wants us all to come. It's never coming with anything in our own arms. As the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, our self-righteousness is like filthy rags to God. And God says in the book of Romans through the Apostle Paul, no flesh is justified by the works of the law. It's by the deeds of the law that people understand that we need a Savior and that we cannot live up to the standard of the law. So we need to be humble even to get in. That's where beginning then in verse 18, Jesus encourages us to reflect upon our choices. Notice I put there in the notes that in this passage you'll see where we can either trust in ourselves or we can trust in God. We can trust in what we possess or we can trust in what God provides. Again, these go right along with what Jesus has just taught. Or we can trust in our circumstances or we can trust in the Scriptures. Those are the choices before us really every day. And we can flesh them out differently. But notice what Jesus says in verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Many people go, Why didn't Jesus say he was good? Why didn't he? Well, he is. He, he's trying to get the young man to see there is no one good but God. So if you're saying, I'm good, then you're acknowledging I'm God? Is that right? Is that what you're doing? That's what Jesus is trying to get him to see. Because Jesus, in a sense, is agreeing. There is no one absolutely good but God. Verse 20. You know, or, so, 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Notice the one he left out in the second half of the Ten Commandments that deals with our relationships with each other is don't covet. You'll see why in just a moment. The man replied, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. Wow. That's, that's pretty good. Basically, he told Jesus, I've kept all your commandments. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. See, Jesus always knows. What's that one thing, that one obstacle that keeps us from following Jesus? Or, or maybe even coming into a relationship with Jesus knows what's that one thing. What's that one thing tonight in our lives? What's that one thing that's keeping us from being a wholehearted, consecrated, committed God follower? What is that? Jesus knows. Do we know? Jesus knows what that one thing holding us back is. Do we know what that one thing is? Because notice what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus wants this young man to follow him, but he understands that this one hang up, this one obstacle this young man has is things. They have him more than Jesus at this point has him. And that's why he says, you've got to be willing to leave those things and forsake those things so that you can truly follow me. What is that? What is that one thing maybe in our lives right now that Jesus is asking us to leave behind so that we can be a better follower? What's that one thing he's asking us to forsake so that we can be a better follower? He knows what it is. He will in time reveal it to us. What is that in our lives? Jesus knew what it was in this young man's life. So in verse 25, or excuse me, verse 23, when the man heard this, he became very sad. For he was extremely wealthy. And when Jesus noticed this, he said, how hard it is. How with great difficulty is what the words mean. It is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now many interpret... What went on here is that the young man then just went and never followed Jesus. But I don't think that that's what's in the language at all. I think it's very possible that this young man came back and followed Jesus, but he, he was very sad because of what he had to do to do it. He had to go home and tell his accountant, sell everything I got because I got to go follow Jesus. And you see, sometimes it's, it's like... I know what I need to do to follow Jesus more closely, but I don't want to give it up. And it makes me sad. And, and we wrestle sometimes throughout our Christian life as we surrender more of our lives over to God to go, but there's that, that one thing I don't want to let go of and it makes me sad to let go of it. It doesn't say he wasn't willing to let go of it. It just says he was extremely sorrowful because he had to let go of it. In fact, Jesus went on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because for most part, they trust in what they have rather than being totally dependent on God. Those who heard this then said, well, who can be saved? Who can be de delivered from God's judgment? And he replied, what is impossible or unable to be done for mere humans is possible for God. In other words, God is able. God is powerful. God is strong. God is mighty. 
He can save all who come to Him. There's no one He can't save. And it's totally impossible for any human to save themselves. They can't do it. We don't have the power to save ourselves. But God can save us. Whether we're rich, poor, whatever. So then Peter, you know Peter, he's always the guy who's right there, ready to add some kind of comment or commentary. Peter said, look, Lord, we have left everything. We own to follow you. We've done this. We've forsaken everything. We've left everything behind. In other words, what do we get out of it? And Jesus said to them, and this is important for you and I, those of us who are struggling to surrender things or, or our lives and, and parts of our lives over to God, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. There is no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of God's kingdom who will not receive many times more in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't outgive God. Whatever you think you're surrendering or you're giving up to follow God, God is saying, I'll match it and more. Not only in the life to come, Jesus says, but in this life. Now, one of the ways I want you to see this fleshed out, because we've talked about how important the local church is and our brothers and sisters in Christ. For many in Jesus' day, down through history, even to today, who had to, in a sense, leave their families in order to follow Jesus Christ, Jesus gave them a whole other mess of family. So that they actually had more brothers and sisters... More moms and dads, if you will, spiritually. More spiritual children by being part of God's household than they ever had by leaving behind their family in order to follow Jesus. And before I move on, one other very important thing Jesus here is teaching. We must always make sure as Christians we keep in balance the role of family and friends or anyone, any relationship in our lives to following Jesus. Certainly, we talked on Sunday about the importance of brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible talks about the importance of family and that family should be important and a priority. But it should never become an idol to where even our family somehow is holding us back from what following Jesus means. If that's the case, then it doesn't matter how healthy, how loving, how great a relationship a family has. God is going to call us out on that. God is going to call us to account for that. Because just like in our family, Lisa should never be held back from following Jesus because of her relationship with me. Stephen and Beth Ann should never be held back in any way from being a follower of Jesus because of our family dynamic. Our family is important to us. Santiago, what, we, we love our family. But we have to make sure that we balance that, that just like Jesus modeled for us, that family doesn't cross that line where family becomes the end-all, be-all, and somehow family even trumps Jesus. Jesus always has first allegiance in our lives.
Then, finally, the faith that stopped Jesus, beginning at verse, well, I, I skipped verse 31, sorry. Here I am getting so excited. So Jesus, I'll I'll read verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and said to him, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, mistreated, spat on. They will flog him severely, kill him. On the third day he will rise again. But the twelve understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what Jesus meant. This part of the passage is where, under the notes, it says, Trusting in our circumstances or in the Scriptures. Because Jesus was sharing with them the scriptures of how Messiah himself had to go, had to suffer, had to die, had to be flogged, had to be mistreated, had to be betrayed, had to be rejected. And, and for all of us, we can go through times in our life or seasons in our life where, you know, we're looking at circumstances rather than trusting in the word of God. Because sometimes the word of God is all that we have. Our circumstances look like everything in our life is upside down and God doesn't exist and God's not on the throne and God's losing and Satan's winning and all this. And that's why we have a choice. Are we going to trust in our circumstances and the way things are falling out in our life or are we going to trust the Scriptures? And that even fleshed out at the end of Jesus' life. Because if you were to look at the end of Jesus' life, you would have concluded, God's lost, God's not on the throne, God doesn't love us, God doesn't care. You know, it's all over. But when you look at the Scriptures, you go, this is exactly what the Scriptures predicted, which is why God calls us to follow the Scriptures rather than to follow our circumstances. To walk by faith, not by sight. The reason why the disciples didn't grasp this is because the Jews, especially in Jesus' day, had such a block if you will, and just even up to this day, they cannot reconcile the fact that Messiah dies, that that Messiah suffers. See, for them, their idea of Messiah from the Old Testament, as they concentrated on the Scriptures they wanted to, was that Messiah was going to be this great political leader, that when He came, He was going to set up His kingdom immediately. He was going to overthrow the Romans, especially at that time, who were the leaders of the world. And, And that's the Messiah. They bypassed all the suffering passages like Isaiah 53 and others. And so that's why they just could not get through that block because they came with such preconceived ideas of who or what the Messiah was to be. That's why they could not grasp it. Finally, the faith that stopped Jesus. I love this. Verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, the word approach means to draw or come near. That's important. You'll see that in the notes. A blind man was sitting by the road begging. When he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was going on. And they told him, Jesus, the Nazarene is passing by. So he cried out. The word means to speak in a strong voice. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front scolded him to get him to be quiet. I love this. He shouted even more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and ordered the beggar to be brought to him. When the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he replied, Lord, let me see again. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. 
And immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they too gave praise to God. So you'll notice there in the notes, you can sort of follow it down through the passage. The faith that stopped Jesus is because it is a faith that seizes opportunity. Jesus was close. Jesus was passing by. Jesus was approaching. Folks, there's certain times in our life, even as Christians, where we have opportunity to get closer to God, to seize that moment, to seize that opportunity to make an impact or whatever. And and God wants us to learn by faith to seize those opportunities when they pass us by because they're not always going to pass us by. Just like in this man's case, Jesus wasn't always going to pass by. In fact, he was on his way to Jerusalem. This was that opportunity and the man seized it by faith. Secondly, faith is bold and courageous. You see that in the passage. Man, he's strong voice. He's crying out. He's not bashful. He's bold. And God calls us to be bold and courageous, especially in our witness and our understanding of who he is. In the world in which we live today, we as Christians have gotten too intimidated by the political correctness and by the culture of our world. And we have toned down our witness. And it's time that the church rise up and be bold and courageous again. God sent His Spirit so that the Spirit of God could make us bold witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you see that. Even when they said, be quiet, He got even louder. Faith that is humble. Notice He said, have mercy on me, Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't that He thought He deserved this visit from Jesus or whatever this healing or whatever he wanted was going to be, it was a humble thing that ties in with the rest of the passage. It's a faith that is correct. The reason we say that is notice what he calls Jesus in verse 38. Jesus, son of David. That is a phrase in Jesus' day that meant he understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He was the Messiah. He got it right. When we worship God, we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Faith always leads us to the truth of God. Faith also is specific. Notice in verse 41, when Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? He replied, Lord, let me see again, which implies that one time this man could see. He lost his sight at some time. And so he's very specific. Think about this. What what is something specific that, that... your faith can flesh out right now. I'll come back to that at the end here in just a moment. It's a faith that honors God. Notice, immediately he returned, uh, when he regained his sight, he followed Jesus praising God. Again, the word praise here means to magnify, to celebrate, to elevate, to exalt, as we sang about tonight. And it's a faith that's contagious because of this man's faith. The Bible says, when all the people saw it, they too gave praise to God. I want to go back and leave you with this question of Jesus in verse 41. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to take this question home with you for a week, and I'd like you to think about it. Now, this isn't homework. You don't have to come back and report anything. It's between you and God. But I think it's a great question and one that we need to meditate on and think about for a while rather than just passing over. Many people, when they come to this question of Jesus to the blind man, they think, I mean, honestly, they think, that's a dumb question. The man's blind. What do you think you want me to do for you, right? But here's the thing. I want you to think about that question. 
If Jesus was to say to you what he said to this blind man, what do you want me to do for you? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? Now, again, even with this man, many people go, well, it's, it's obvious what we would want Jesus to do, is it? Think about it now. Don't, don't. Is it really obvious what you want Jesus to do for you? And let me even go so far as to say this. I believe that there are times where we even pray and ask God for things, but it's not what we really want. See, I don't think what we really want sometimes, even from God, is as obvious as we think it is. That's why Jesus asked the question. That's why he asked the question of the guy by the pool at Siloam. When the guy was there for 38 years or something, and Jesus asked him the same, as we would probably call dumb question, what do you want me to do for you? Because... God understands something that maybe we're not realizing and we don't understand. Is do we really do we really understand what we want God to do for us if he asks us that question? Is it that obvious? Is it that self-evident? And if Jesus was to ask us that would we even know how to respond? If God said to Jeff Royce tonight, "Jeff, what do you want me to do for you?" What would my response be? And why? I think it's a profound question. I think it's a question that sort of... I think it could, can help us see maybe even where our walk is with God. And, and I think it can also be a question that as we meditate and think about it and maybe even answer it, it can even maybe spur on our spiritual growth. God, I think, is asking all of us tonight through this passage, what do you want me to do for you? What would be our response to that question? Jesus, in this great chapter, wants us to center our lives around Him. He wants us to talk to Him, to be aware of Him. He wants us to follow Him. He wants us to trust Him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for just the life of Jesus, the lessons that Jesus gives us, the, the things, the insights that Jesus shares with us. The things, Lord, that you know about us that sometimes we don't even know about ourselves the insightful questions that you ask us that, that probe into who we really are that sometimes we don't even take time to even think about. If you, God, were to ask any of us, what do you want me to do for you? Right now, at this season of our life, at this time in our life, what would that answer be? And why? God, help us to Meditate on that. Help us to reflect on that. But help us, Lord, not to get caught up in that. Help us simply this coming week learn to talk to You. Learn to be aware of You more. Learn to follow You closer. And learn to trust You more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks,